Luke 22, beginning in verse 14. When the hour had come, he sat down, and the twelve apostles with him. Then he said to them, With fervent desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. But behold, the hand of my betrayer is with me on the table, and truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question among themselves which of them it was who would do this thing. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, your word has been uttered. We're reminded, Lord, that the whole world, the flesh and the devil, stand against these things. Since the scripture was originally given, Lord, there have been many, many attempts to destroy it, many, many attempts to silence it, many, many attempts to silence your church. And in many places, even now, to merely do as we have done is unlawful. They declare boldly in public that which you have declared. The secrets of that upper room made known. Heavenly Father, how we pray that having come this far, that you would be with us, and that in particular that you would grant us understanding into these things hard to understand. The nature of this covenant and the new covenant, and how indeed these things are to be found in this Lord's Supper. How we pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts and our minds, both of which are very scanty in their capacity, and enlarge them and bless them, that we might see these things, in particular that we might see Christ in them. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we continue on in chapter 22 in this upper room and come we come to what is called by some the last supper but i think that's a poor way of describing it in some sense it is true it is his last supper but even even as he speaks these things he's speaking of soon enough having it again with his disciples so it's hardly the last it couldn't possibly be that but rather it is christ's institution of the lord's supper it may well be the last of something but it isn't christ's last supper Rather, it is the last Passover that is to be had, in which the signs, the, the symbols, and the types of the Old Testament and the old administration of the covenant, which is called the Old Covenant, these things had come now to an end. And all their fulfillment, they were about, uh, all this was about to happen. And so it was that this was the last of the Passovers, but the first of the Lord's Suppers. And there are many things um, that we could rightly spend much time on. 
And ordinarily, we encounter this passage in our administration of the Lord's Supper. Again, it was not the Last Supper. Why? Because we recently have had a Lord's Supper, and we know that our communion spiritually is with the Lord Jesus, who is in heaven, and spiritually we have fellowship with him and sup with him. But that's the way in which we normally do, and we focus on the the way that the body and blood typify the body, the, the bread and the, the cup, that they typify the broken body and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus, rightfully so. But now let's encounter it in a different way, and let's focus on something that we don't talk about as much, and particularly this language about the new covenant. We have not spoken as much about that. And this morning, with the Lord's help, this is what I propose to do. And so the the title of this sermon this morning is The Advent of the New Covenant. And I use that word uh, thoughtfully, as soon enough we come to what is often called the season of Advent. And we sometimes think that just means the, the, the coming of Christ. Well, it's the Advent of Christ. It's the coming of Christ. And this was something else. This was the Advent of the New Covenant. And this is our subject this morning. Well, we have three points in the advent of the new covenant. First, Christ our had come. Secondly, the new covenant in Christ's blood. And third, fulfilled in the kingdom. Uh, so first of all, Christ our had come. In verse 14, when the hour had come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. Now, this hour, it should be familiar to you because this terminology we've seen, we've encountered throughout the Gospel of Luke, but also in the Gospel of John before that. In John 13, 1, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. This beautiful, beautiful passage in John 17 that is is parallel to what we have in Luke 22. But before that, in John 7.20, Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him. Why? What's the explanation for it? Because his hour had not yet come. That was the explanation. His hour hadn't come. Or John 8.20, These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. Then in John 12.23, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. Well, this hour, this that itself provided the explanation for why it was that they did not and could not seize Christ before his time. They they did not and could not put him to death until his time. Now that hour had come. And I think it is worth repeating that God has all of time under his sovereign control, something that is so very hard for us to imagine because it seems so out of control sometimes. But it's not. He is indeed, as the hymn says, he is the great potentate of time, the all-powerful sovereign who has these things utterly in his hands. It is as a, a child perhaps has a toy clock, teaching them how to, to, to tell time, and they can just move that time backward and forward like this. It's very easy for them to do so. Of course, it doesn't change the time around them. But the living God, he actually has all of time perfectly in his hands, and the events that he determines will happen 
at their appointed hour, not before and not after. And this reminds us again of Revelation in this scroll. Remember the great event of the opening of the scroll in, speak in, in, in Revelation chapter 5. And, and John himself is weeping because no one is found worthy to open that scroll. And what is in this scroll? It's not the names of the elect as with the, the Lamb's book of life, but rather it is all the events of, of redemptive history. And as that scroll is open, the events begin to happen. And one by one, the scrolls are open. And these events that happen that usher in the everlasting kingdom, they happen. Because it's the transcript of the divine mind. That all things that happen, happen first were planned in eternity in the mind of God and have their fulfillment bit by bit as they are spoken out. We know that the Lord spoke the whole universe into existence and even now that by the word of his power all things are being upheld. That means that moment by moment things have their existence ultimately in the mind of God and more proximately because they have been spoken into being by the living God who is the Lord of them all. And so this transcript of the divine mind is being read out and all the events happen precisely as God would have them to. And that, my friends, is the great connection. This is the, the application on the way as we go for you between gospel promise and gospel fulfillment. That's why the gospel is so certain. Anyone else's word, it might be uncertain, but it is God's word and it is good as done. When he speaks things, they happen. They have reality. They have their basis, you see, in the divine mind, which cannot but be fulfilled in time. And when the Lord declares that all who believe in Christ will be saved, that declaration is grounded in the greatest of realities, and you can absolutely bank on it. It's going to happen. We don't have to walk away here uncertain about our salvation if you have believed in Christ Nothing is more clear, nothing is more certain than that you should be saved. But, continuing on in our point that Christ's hour had now come, even here, Christ's great love for his disciples is very evident. He says in verse 15, With fervent desire I have desired to eat this Passover for you before I suffer. Because it's not in just some general sense in which he is carrying out all the events of the world. Yes, in the farthest reaches of the universe, in some galaxy that we cannot even see with our space telescopes as yet, he is minutely upholding all the interactions of every one of those atoms and subatomic particles in their precise regularity. We don't even know about it. He's doing that. But far, far more so is he concerned, more intimately and more immediately with his own people. And he is saying with great, with fervent desire. There are two words in Greek here that are hard to conf- They actually are the same word, twice repeated. With desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you. Now, Christ delights to do all the will of God. That's the thing that separates him, isn't he? The perfectly righteous one. He, he doesn't just do it. He loves to do it. Every part of God's word, every part of the law of God, Christ fulfilled with joy and delight. I delight to do your law, O Lord. If only that were true of us. Every part of it. But the emphasis, again, <laughs> surpassing all of these things, 
This is the joy that he has in the work of redeeming his own people and of being with them and having the fellowship. This is the thing that he desires. He is securing our salvation. He is securing our redemption in order that he might have our fellowship, in order that he might be with us in eternity. Again, this is the joy set before him, spoken of in Hebrews. And with fervent desire, he says, I've desired to eat this Passover. That hour that had come, Yes, it was an hour of his impending death, but it was an hour of joy as he could spend with his own disciples. He had fervently desired that to come, and he delighted in it. Again, that verse in John 13, 1, let me say it again. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them till the end. This, friends, is Christ Jesus. This is the hour of his judgment. But it is also the hour of his great fervent desire in which he joyfully spends time with his disciples. Yes, as we see, he's instructing them. Yes, he's showing them again his imminent departure and death. But even as this part of the divine transcript is, this is a part he was looking forward to. This is a good part of the story. He knows it all in advance. He knows it perfectly as if you and I had had memorized some great novel. And this is a part he was looking forward to. The hour had come. And he was spending it in joyful fellowship, table fellowship, with his disciples. Now, Christ's hour had come, but what we're speaking about is the advent of the new covenant. And let me, just to switch around the order of the points slightly, let's, let's now consider that, that word, until it is fulfilled in the kingdom. Let's, let's, let's think briefly about this fulfillment in the kingdom. It says in verse 16, For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now, the Passover itself, you have to understand, the Passover itself, it was a sacrament. It was a sacrament of the Old Covenant, but it did what it promised for those who received it in faith. Do you understand what I mean? That if, for those of God's, for God's covenant people who uh, had been instructed in this, this sacrament, and they were, It wasn't a dumb sacrament. It wasn't a dumb sign. It came with instruction in the word of God. There are very clear instructions given in the Old Testament of this. And it was explaining about this death. It was explaining about the Lord's Passover. Explaining about the God's mercy and grace in these things. And his promise that would ultimately be fulfilled in the Messiah. For those who received all that in faith, they actually received that which it portrayed. Their own salvation at the cost of another, the spotless Lamb of God. That's, it was a sacrament. It did what was on the tin. You receive it in faith and you are saved because of your faith in Christ. But like everything else in the law, in the ceremonial law of the Old Testament, it pointed beyond itself to Christ. This aspect, like everything else in the Old Testament law, was going to have its fulfillment. How so? In what? Well, in the death of Christ, of course. It's all of it pointed to Christ, but supremely the thing that most clearly 
pointed to Christ was surely the death of this innocent lamb. Why? Why are we killing this lamb, Daddy? What's wrong with this lamb? Nothing's wrong. That's why we're, we're killing it. It has to be perfect. But his shed blood is what's going to save us from the wrath of God. And it pointed, of course, to Christ. That's exactly what is about to happen. It's it's going to be fulfilled, therefore, friends, in the kingdom of God. Now, we understand that the kingdom of God ultimately has fulfillment in that which is to come. But he said the kingdom of God is coming now. The kingdom of God was inaugurated as Christ himself fulfilled for all these things foretold, all the prophecies about the Lord Jesus Christ. This was his kingdom of grace, the kingdom of God, being built up even then and certainly now. But notice in verse 17, Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So he's, he's spoken in one sense until it's being fulfilled, until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he's also speaking until the kingdom of God comes. Because we are always looking backwards and forwards in the Lord's Supper. When we look at the death of Christ and everything that happened, it is both, it's, yes, it's a fulfillment of everything that come. It itself was the coming of the kingdom. And it is pointing us towards the future coming in complete fulfillment of the kingdom of God. And so in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-five, we say this every time we take the Lord's Supper. He also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Both ways. Both ways. You're, you're both looking back in remembrance, and you're also looking forward In proclamation, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. There's no sense remembering that which has no implications for the future. That's why we have a Remembrance Day, incidentally. You see, there is an ongoing significance to what has happened in the past. And therefore, we determine as a nation to have continual remembrance because it has implications for what happens now and for the future, lest we forget Well, much, much more so when it comes to Christ and all the things that are portrayed in the Lord's Supper. We remember his death, even as the people beforehand in the the time of the Old Covenant looked forward to his death. We remember his death, but we also proclaim that which is yet to come, the complete fulfillment of the kingdom. Because he's not done yet. And there are some other things yet to be read out in that scroll. And there are some other parts that Christ is looking forward to getting to. In that great book of his, and that is when he brings in his kingdom of righteousness, the new heavens and the new earth, wherein righteousness dwells, until it is fulfilled in the kingdom. But thirdly and finally, the new covenant inaugurated, and this is is the heart of what we're speaking of this morning, this advent of the new covenant, it is inaugurated here, as he says in his blood. In verse 19, he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood, which is shed 
for you. The new covenant, twice repeated. What is it? What is he talking about? Well, it's the same in the parallel text, Matthew 26. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Or in Mark 14, 24, and he said to them, This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. This blood, this covenant. And we have to understand, friends, beloved, that blood is inherent in God's gracious dealings with his sinful people. More than once I have said it, that there is no salvation apart from judgment. And now let me say that there is no covenant, there is no grace, God's dealing with sinful mankind apart from bloodshed. Blood is inherent in God's dealings with his sinful people. Genesis 15, 8. Long time ago, Abram, and he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? How will I know? Well, the answer comes in blood. Verse 9, so he said to me, bring me a three-year-old heifer a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. He brought these to him and cut them in two down the middle and placed each piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. Cut them in two. How will I know that I'll inherit this? And God's answer comes in the shedding of blood. And we know course that what should have happened thereafter is that Abram and the Lord the angel of the Lord who is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ the pre-incarnate son of God that they should have together walked in the middle and said something along the lines of and thus may it happen to me if I do not fulfill the terms of this covenant but we know that didn't happen did it Rather, in verse 17, it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark to behold there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch had passed between those pieces. Our God is a burning fire. And there was no Abram. Rather, a deep sleep had been put over him. He was incapacitated. All he could do was passively witness what was going on. It was not two parties that passed between those bleeding bodies, but one the living God in the form of the only begotten Son of God, and the person of the only begotten Son of God, that he walked alone in the middle. And he, at that moment, took upon himself the obligations of the covenant, all of the obligations. And he, one day, knowing that one day he would be as those animals, his body broken and his blood poured out. This is the covenant. And let me say that this is about the fulfillment of the old covenant that began there, given to, to Abraham. And as I say, it is a fulfillment, therefore, of the one covenant of grace. Because as we look at this, our mistake could be imagined that there are two utterly separate covenants. It's certainly not about the covenant of works, which was made in the Garden of Eden. That one came, that one, as far as anything that we could do about it, came to an end with Adam's sin. It remains in effect for all the, for all the unbelievers. They will continue to try to earn their salvation. They will continue to fail, and they will continue to be judged in accordance with their works, and that means death, eternal death. 
But as for us, someone else is going to have to keep our end of the bargain, and that is Christ. And that is the one covenant of grace, one and not two. But yes, it had two administrations, one the old, that everything about it had to do with with types and signs and shadows and symbols, and the new in Christ himself as we see these things fulfilled. And here, finality in the new covenant replaces anticipation. Fulfillment replaces anticipation. Jeremiah tells of these days, he says in Jeremiah 31, The days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law on their minds and write it in their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. Now here's the key. Here's the thing. Yes, there's going to be much more knowledge. Yes, the word of God is is going to be clear in the New Testament, and the, the Holy Spirit's going to be poured out in great measure. But the thing that is of greatest significance here is for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more that's the greatest thing about this new administration it's no longer an anticipation and looking forward in faith to when that is done and when that is possible how could how could they ever forget about their sin how could God ever say that he's going to forget about their sin when every year there was a new new lamb to be slain every year there had to be a new scapegoat because other people's sin it was always coming up for remembrance they couldn't go any time without the remembrance God bringing up remembrance of their sin but now now in Christ I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more but he, because his gracious dealings will come to their ultimate fulfillment in Christ once and for all sacrifice for his people. And beloved, Jesus Christ is the mediator of this new covenant. Look, that's the other thing about the old covenant. We understand that all these things pointed to, to Christ. But do you, you know that in, in some sense you could say maybe... Abraham was the mediator, or maybe Moses was a mediator. At least they shared aspects of the spotlight, but this time there's no one sharing the spotlight with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all him. It's all focused most directly upon him, and he is the mediator of this new covenant. In Hebrews 12, 24, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. Hebrews 9, 11. Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with a greater and the more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy. This is all being spoken to these Jewish believers who are being tempted to go back to their old ways, to go back to the temple, to go back to the ceremonial law. And they thought how nice and neat it was when we used to kill animals. And shed their blood. And the the apostle looks in dismay at these things under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and says, Friends, we have something so much better than that. So much better. It's not the blood of bulls and goats and ashes of a heifer. It's not that. 
How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? That's the thing. Every year, perhaps in some sense every month or even every day, there is remembrance of their sin because what is being shown in the old administration continually is a need for this to be dealt with in some final way. And there it was done. And Jesus says, this is me. This is what's happening. Over these next hours, this is all going to be fulfilled. This is the time. The hour had come. And the new covenant is now inaugurated in my blood. The old administration was about the blood of lambs and goats and heifers. The new covenant, very directly and very immediately and visibly, is about the blood of Christ. And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of of the eternal, eternal inheritance. This is the promise that is given to us. And friends, there is nothing better, nothing greater than I, that I could possibly do for you than to extend that invitation to you anew. There's only, there, I can't go and sacrifice some new animal for you. We know that the, the, the mind of sinful flesh would desire such a thing. We know that even now in Roman Catholic churches, they imagine that they are reenacting the sacrifice week by week in their idolatrous mass. My friends, God has given us something infinitely better than all that had come before, even of his own design, let alone the wicked imaginations of mankind. He has given us the blood of Christ. Christ says to his friends, those who are gathered. We know incidentally this, that even included Judas. The invitation even went to him. He says, this is what is before you. The table is set that you might receive forgiveness for your sins, no matter how bad they are. Once and for all to be dealt with. And I urge you to take Christ's invitation. There's nothing more to to come. There will be fulfillment, praise God. There will be fulfillment utterly in the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells and all the presence of sin will be dealt with. But even right now, this new covenant has been inaugurated and we may receive forgiveness through Christ. Secondly, let me say... And if Christ is the mediator of the new covenant in his blood, we can also say that some application has to do with ministers of the new covenant. Because I, I, I know what you are thinking and what I would probably think in your position is that if Christ himself were doing what he did at this institution, this inauguration of the new covenant in his blood, this institution of the Lord's Supper, then I would be glad to receive it at his hands. I would be glad to receive it at his invitation. But there's, that, it seems a little bit different to be in this ugly community center receiving it from you with all respect. And let me tell you that ministers have been designated and empowered to be ministers of this new covenant. 
says in 2 Corinthians 3, 5, Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think of anything as being from ourselves, but our sufficiency is from God, who also made us sufficient as ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. That's an amazing warrant from God. And, and let me say that his purpose is not to aggrandize myself. Certainly not. We know, in fact, that even as Paul had to write this, he himself was regarded in, in low terms by himself and by others. But the issue is that the word that comes from my mouth, this invitation, is as good as gold. It might as well be coming from the mouth of the Lord Jesus himself, because it is at his warrant and his commission that I am able to relay this invitation to you. Truly, however insufficient I and others might be in ourselves, we are made in the power and in the sovereign determination of God to be ministers of this new covenant and therefore to extend on his behalf this administration, this invitation. And friends, the connection is precisely with that transcript because that part of it has been read out by Christ. That part of it has been read out by the Holy Spirit and given to us in Holy Scripture. And therefore I speak the words to you and you who receive them. It is as as if it were already written down that you already know the future, that you are safe, that you are forgiven, that you are saved. Thankfully, Ministers are made to be ministers of the new covenant. Thirdly, I want to say a little word about affections. Did you notice that word with fervent desire? I hope none of you thought that that was undignified of the Lord Jesus. I hope none of you thought that that was a little bit too charismatic of the Lord Jesus Christ to say with fervent desire, I've desired this thing. Because let me say, if it was true of Christ, and this is what this is the standard that we are held to. And our problem is not that we have too much fervency, it is that we don't have enough. You know, first Peter one twenty two says this since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. This is the sort of love that he desires. This is what he commands. If you don't have fervent love for one another, you're not doing as the word of God has told you. If it's lukewarm, if it's businesslike, it's not what the Lord would have from you. It's not good enough. 1 Peter 4.8, And again, above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Why aren't these multitude of sins being covered? We know ultimately that speaking of Christ, his fervent love is what indeed has brought us salvation, not his lukewarm love, Not his business-like approach, but his fervent love is what has brought us salvation in Christ in the first place. That's what's covered over our multitude of sins. And what is going to cover over multitudes of sin within our own congregation is a fervent love. A love that's so great it can take a few hits. It can take a few disappointments. It can take a few uh, lack of, uh, of reciprocation or disappointment of expectation. Fervency, you see, is Christ-like. It's not lukewarm. He says, I hate 
lukewarmness. I can't stand it. And friends, this is what the body of Christ must be. Fervent in our affection for right things. Fervent for Christ. Fervent for his kingdom and fervent towards one another. And I pray God that he would advance us in this work. Fourthly, let me have a word about spiritual conversation. We're speaking of these these books and how it is that we're, we're the intent is that we should have something to discuss, something good, because otherwise maybe we don't have something in common to discuss with one another. Well, we should have we ultimately have Christ and we have His Word, and maybe just maybe we can also read some good books together. Well, this is Matthew Henry's application, by the way, of Christ discussing all these spiritual and theological things at supper. We should take example from him to entertain and edify our family and friends with such discourse at table as is good and to the use of edifying, which may minister grace to the hearers, especially as after we have been at the Lord's table, by a Christian conference to keep one another in a suitable frame. That's it. Speaking of which, that's why we do conferences. That's why we spend a lot of money as a church in sponsoring good conferences. Precisely to do spiritual good to those who come. Edwards, his last resolution. Do you know what it is? Number 70 out of 70, let there be something of benevolence in all that I speak. Imparting grace to the hearers. Ephesians 4.29, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to to the hearers. Is it hard for us? Yeah. You know why? Because we're not sufficiently spiritual. Because actually our hearts are very worldly, and we must fight against it. Is it going to be hard this day to maintain spiritual conversation on the Lord's day? Absolutely. Hard for you? Hard for me. Why? Because we haven't arrived. Should we, should we therefore not try? No. No. Our resolution should be that of Edwards. Our application should be that of Henry, who are far more spiritual than you or I. They knew what they were talking about because this is the word of God in Ephesians 4. That our desire, our ambition, should be somehow to do good to one another in conversation. And that, friends, we have to believe that this sufficient word is good enough to have application to everything. That doesn't mean that we only quote Bible verses to one another. No, that's actually not even the most helpful thing. It's rather to relate the ordinary things of life to these spiritual things. That's the trick. It's to say that whether if it's a good thing, then we glorify God about it. And there's always some element of theology relating to that. If it's a bad thing, There is some promise related to it in the word of God. And our brothers and sisters need to hear that promise. Some affirmation. Something to look forward to. Some light in the tunnel. All these things, you see, we have to believe that the greatest good we do to one another is a spiritual good. And so, friends, how we pray that God would make us to be like Christ. Able, skillfully, and joyfully to to do spiritual good to one another in conversation. Well, let's pray. Gracious God, truly, Lord, you are gracious. And Lord, because we are sinners, that means that there must be blood. If you are going to give us a gracious covenant, if you are going to uphold the terms of this covenant rather than 
that we should do so. Lord, there surely must be blood. And we are thankful that Christ loved his own until the end. He did not forsake them. His love was not lukewarm, but rather it was fervent. And he sat down in that upper room. And he put in motion all these events leading to his own sacrifice. The innocent Lamb of God, his body broken and his blood shed in order that we might live. And thus he inaugurated this new covenant in his blood. And Lord, we are thankful that we can partake of these things spiritually. We are thankful, Lord, that we have better and clearer and more direct promises and fulfillments than what was given to your people in the old administration. So, Heavenly Father, how we pray, Lord, that we would surely take him up in this invitation. We have such a better thing. And, Lord, yes, that we would live in accordance with it in every sort of way. And that our conversation, our manner of life, and, yes, our words, that we would seek to impart spiritual good to one another. As we have fervent love, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.